Thank you, Stephanie, for that big boost. A seminar. Sounds dangerously academic. I don't plan to run a seminar, but I do plan to uh, try and open the book a little. So nice to see you. Don't we fit nicely into the Hanley room? (laughs) This is much less daunting than talking in the cathedral, I can tell you. The Old Testament, the term is somewhat problematic and sometimes you hear it referred to as the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures, sometimes the First Testament. See, the danger with the word old is that we inhabit a culture where we tend to think anything that's old, means it means clapped out, <laughs> past its used by date, even old archbishops. <laughs> That's not what we're saying when we call it the Old Testament. I have no great trouble in calling it the Old Testament, though I have used these other terms from time to time, depending on the circumstances. But old, in this case, does not mean clapped out or superseded, because, in fact, if you take the Bible in your hand, as I am now, and if you look at the old, so-called Old Testament in the Bible, you will find that it's most of the Bible. And there's the skinny little New Testament. Makes Christianity seem awfully thin, doesn't it? Well, in fact, when you read the New Testament carefully, in some ways it can be understood as a how to read the Old Testament. It's not as if Old and New Testament are kind of two equivalents. They're not. They're part of one book. And that's an important thing to to see and to say as Christians. We have one Bible. In the very early church there was a a teacher called Marcion. And Marcion ended up a heretic. And the reason he ended up a heretic was that he said that in fact the Old Testament was bad news and should be jettisoned. And he saw the God of the Old Testament as this terribly dark, fierce, anti-God. And the God of the New Testament was a God who was full of light and love and joy and peace and all those good things. And it was as if there was war between the Demiurge, the the dark God of the Old Testament, and the real God, the God of love of the New Testament. And Marcion not only chucked out the Old Testament, he got his red pen. And he went through the New Testament and he crossed out all the bits of the Old Testament that he found. And you know what? There wasn't much left. <laughs> so that so and eventually he, he plummets off into the black hole of heresy. So that question about the Old Testament was long ago resolved. And when we read the Old Testament at uh, at Mass, at the end of it, we used to say, we don't say anymore, this is the word of the Lord. We just say the word of the Lord, but it implies this is the word of the Lord. Not this was once upon a time the word of the Lord. And it's the same God. Marcion got it badly wrong. We Christians often enough think that the the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament's all about love. Well, I can tell you now that the Old Testament's all about law and love and so too is the New Testament. So don't overstate the difference between Old and New Testament. There's not perfect continuity 
but they are two parts of the one book and in many ways the New Testament is simply a prism through which to read the Old Testament now with full understanding because the prism is the encounter with the risen Christ. And in the light of that encounter, the early Christians, all of whom were Jews, remember the only Bible Jesus ever knew was what we call the Old Testament. The only Bible that early Christianity knew was called the Old Testament. Paul's earliest letters, which are the earliest texts of the New Testament, date probably from the late 40s, 49 they think, 1 Thessalonians. Now a lot of water had flowed underneath the Christian bridge between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the end of the 40s. And the only Bible they knew at that time was what we call the Old Testament. But in the light of this encounter with the risen Christ, where, see, meeting him changed everything. What they did, these Jewish Christians, our first brothers and sisters, they went back to Genesis 1.1. Bereshith bara Elohim et In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as it were, every line somehow spoke differently to them. It looked different in the light of the encounter with the risen Christ. And time and time again, you can see it in the New Testament when eventually they do put pen to paper, as it were, you can see, ah, now I see what the scripture means. You see it in the famous Emmaus story where Jesus opens their, the scripture to them. It's that encounter with him that allows the penny to drop and you can hear these first Jewish Christians saying, Eureka! Suddenly the doors of perception are cleansed and I understand the scripture in a way that I never did before. So you see what I mean when I talk about the New Testament as a how to read the Old Testament. I'm not talking just about dead words on a page. I'm talking about texts that enable us to encounter the risen Christ. And it's only through the lens of that encounter that you will understand the Hebrew Bible. Now, tonight we turn to the theme of mercy. Why not in this year of mercy? And it will come as no surprise to you when I say that mercy is not just one among many themes. I mean, I have a big fat book in my library at Weinberg and it's called Theological Dictionary of the Bible of the Old Testament, in fact, by two famous German scholars, and you can look up the entry Mercy in this big fat book. Now, that can give you the impression that here tonight I'm only going to talk about one theme in the Scripture. In fact, I'm not, because mercy is not just one theme in the Scripture, it's the whole lot. There's nothing other than mercy, if you understand mercy as the Bible does. But I don't think I'm just going to talk about a single theme. I'm going to talk about the whole... Tonight, no extra charge, you're getting one with the lot. <laughs> Pope Francis has focused us on mercy. Now, it's not as if other popes haven't talked about mercy, for God's sake. I mean, John Paul II, well, he talked about everything through 26 years. There was an old Italian I worked with in Rome who said, looking at... Uh, these great fat books containing the, the pontifical teachings of John Paul II. 
And he, he said in his, 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 his Italian, he said, Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mountain and now we've got the Mountain of Sermons. <laughs> <laughs> it's better in Italian. <laughs> so John Paul II wrote a whole encyclical of Adivos in Misericordia Deus. So, and Benedict XVI, again, talked about mercy, but there's some, Pope Francis talks about it, but he does so in a very particular way. Now, if you, you've only got to have read a few pages that are his, and, and there's another voice or idiom that sounds. He, ha, he speaks very simply in a down-to-earth, rather salty kind of way, full of words and images that are accessible. People get what he says, even those who aren't Christian or Catholic. So it's not that others didn't talk about mercy. Of course the popes talk about mercy. If I say it's the whole of the scripture, they could hardly fail to talk about mercy. But there's no question, Pope Francis has done it in a very particular way that we have not been accustomed to from the popes, ever, perhaps. That's a big call. But when I, uh, when I read Evangelii Gaudio, there were parts of it that leapt off the page at me because... I spent some of my life trying to draft speeches for popes or a pope. I know the, the, the style. And there was a voice coming at me from the page of that letter, The Joy of the Gospel, that I had never heard before, at least in the, from the mouth of a pope. Now, in a sense, he speaks a biblical idiom because the Bible also speaks a language which is simple but not trivial. It can be simple and profound. It can be down to earth and yet soar to the heavens. It's a strange combination, isn't it? But the Bible had to be accessible to everyone. It's not specialist literature. It wasn't for the experts. It was for a community like us, where you do have people with high-powered education backgrounds, but you have a lot of people who have little education. And they need to have access to the scripture too. So the scripture itself was composed in a way, or written in a way, that had to make it accessible to entire communities, not just the experts, or people like me who have got training. What Pope Francis has also done is not just talk about mercy in a particular way, but he has enacted mercy publicly. Spectacular example is what we've seen recently when he goes to the island of Lesbos and comes back to Rome with a dozen refugees. But there are so many other ways in which he hasn't just spoken about mercy, he's done mercy. Now, in Hebrew, just relax, all right, don't panic. But in Hebrew, there are various nouns. Now, you all know what a noun is? I hope. <laughs> there, are, there are various words for mercy. There, there is the famous word hesed, you might have heard. And there is an, the almost as famous word racham or rachamim, which refers to the womb. Uh, there, then there are others, hen and hanan. But there are so. So let's say there are three nouns for mercy, each with a different nuance. But in fact, in the Bible, and this is crucial, it relates to what I've just said about Pope Francis. In the Bible, 
Though there are nouns for mercy, in the Bible, mercy is really a verb. You know, what's a verb? A verb is an action word. Mercy isn't something you just think or feel. I mean, you might have merciful thoughts and you might have merciful feelings, but essentially, for the scripture, mercy is a verb. You have to mercy. I mercy, you mercy, we mercy, they mercy. It's something you do. And that's the importance and, and the, the, the deeply biblical importance of what I've just said about Pope Francis. He himself has done mercy, not just privately, under cover of dark or behind closed doors, but very publicly. And he's done it in a way that summons the whole church to enact or do mercy very publicly. And that's a lit, we have done it, but, but not in quite the new way that he is talking about. Not only bringing refugees back from a Greek island, but also washing the feet of, 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 of Muslims. Who, who, who ever thought the Pope would do that or should do it? Uh, putting showers in the, for the homeless in the Vatican. Uh, opening, up, uh, opening up the Vatican museums, no charge, and saying to the homeless, come and have a look at my museum, nice. And even better, handing out to the homeless tickets to the circus. I don't think a Pope's ever done that before. But you see what I mean about action? And it's not rocket science. <laughs> Getting a barber into the Vatican so that, again, the homeless can go and get a haircut. So, so what he's doing, again, is going back to, to the scripture and doing mercy publicly. Now, in this song that we sang so beautifully, well, at least Stephanie and the girls sang beautifully, the rest of us tried, didn't we? <laughs> that first song, we, um, we, we pledged that we will worship the holy name of God. But let me put a question to you. What is the name of God? A few years ago, after the Second Vatican Council, we began to sing all those Yahweh songs. You know, Yahweh is the God of my... As if we'd suddenly twigged to the fact that God's real name wasn't God. His real name was Yahweh. Uh, but I'm afraid it doesn't work like that. Let's just look at this because it'll come, it'll lead me back to Pope Francis in just a moment. When God is bounced onto the stage of the biblical story, you all know how the scripture begins. The biblical story begins in the beginning, God, there it is, bounced onto the stage of the biblical story. At one stage, the writer is thinking, well, how am I going to start? Do you know the feeling? There's nothing as oppressive, they say, as a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen. How will I start this? We all know the feeling. Well, the biblical authors had exactly the same experience. How will I? They, he did not, despite those beautiful paintings, he did not have a bird whispering in his ear. It didn't work like that. So, how will I start? Ah, okay. I'll start this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a good way to start, isn't it? But in fact, it's more complex in the Hebrew. Here I go again with Hebrew. Because when God is bounced onto the stage at that point, 
The word that is used for God is not a name at all. The word that is used, and here I, the old chalk and talk in me now needs a, a, a whiteboard and I haven't got one. If I had one I'd write in great big letters that you could all read, but the word that is deliberately chosen for God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is the very mysterious word in Hebrew, Elohim. Bereshith bara Elohim. Now what's strange about that is that the form is plural. That im on the end of it makes it plural. And yet the Bible defends nothing more tenaciously and passionately than the oneness of God in a world that just assumed many, 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 many gods. The Bible is bizarre, weirdly countercultural in saying, no, only one God. Now they move slowly to, to a strict monotheism, but even so, at the time of the writing of Genesis 1-1, there was that sense of the one God, not the many gods of the pagan world. So why then is God given this strange, plural, non-name, Elohim? It's not a name, it's a designation. The answer, in fact, is that the God of the Bible... Now I should whisper this, I'm letting you in on a secret. The, the, the God of the Bible, in fact, is nameless, is addicted to anonymity. Uh, in the, early on in the book of Exodus, you know the story of the burning bush, where Moses hears the voice of God coming from this bizarre phenomenon, a fire that doesn't consume the bush. In other words, this is a God who doesn't obey the normal logic of uh, human experience. And, and, and a similarly illogical, God says to Moses, you go to Pharaoh, Moses, and you say, let my people go to Pharaoh. And Moses very reasonably says, just before you go, God of the living, tell me your name so that when I go to Pharaoh, who inhabits a world of many gods, all of whom have names, Osiris and Horus, they've all got names. What's your name? so that I can tell Pharaoh Ramses, he's got a name and he's a god. Tell me your name, please. And back comes the thunderous answer. You go to Pharaoh and say, I am sent you. Well, that's no help at all to Moses. That's that Yahweh word. It's not a name. It's a refusal by God to, to give his name to Moses. Why? Because a name contains someone, and this is an uncontainable God. It doesn't have a name. But what, what's implied is this. You want to know my name, do you? And there is no task more central to human life than naming God. Our whole life is a naming of God, an endless... You could never finish naming God. If you want to name God, know God's name, then don't... Don't ask me my name, God says. Look at what I do. The God who names himself in action. Now you see why Pope Francis has just published... I don't know how he gets all these things written, or someone else must write them for him, but he's published, a, a, I think it's a book, is it, or a long interview, and the title of it, you're going to like it, The Name of God is Mercy. 
You see what I mean? Mercy, though, understood not as a noun, but as a verb, as an action. That, that mercy is the name of God. He's absolutely right, but you've got to understand that mercy is action. The God who names himself in action and supremely in the action that we call the incarnation, where God becomes one of us. The word is made flesh and dies and rises. That, that's the, 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 the epicentre of what God does according to the Christian story, the story of this whole Bible, the Christian Bible. But to go back before that, if the name of God is mercy and if mercy is action, and if God, this is a God who names himself in action, what is the prime action of God in the scripture? That becomes an important question if you want to begin to understand what the Bible means by mercy. What is the prime action of God? Exodus. That's where the Bible begins. I know I said that the Bible begins within the beginning God created. In a sense that's true, in a sense it's true in the, in the Bible, the written text, but in fact biblical religion begins with the liberation of slaves. And until we see that, we really can't understand the scripture. It's standing on, on, on the, the summit of the Exodus, the liberation of slaves. The Bible, the Old Testament, looks back to the beginning, the creation, and looks forward to everything that comes subsequently. Even the story of the creation is told in the light of the Exodus. It's like in the New Testament. There is nothing in the New Testament before Easter. I know there is when you read it, but even the stories of what happened before Easter are told in the light of Easter. I hope I'm making myself clear. There is nothing that is pre-Easter in the New Testament and there is nothing that is pre-Exodus in the Old Testament. And in the end, Exodus and Easter are the same thing. The liberation of slaves from Egypt becomes the liberation of the human being from the Egypt of death in the resurrection of Jesus. You've even got the alliteration with Exodus and Easter, two E's, help you to remember, okay? They're the same thing according to the scripture. So the, the fundamental action of God, the mercy of God, is to take this ragbag mob of slaves the, the, the underbelly of the Egyptian empire and its economy. Every empire needs a slave class to, to uh, construct its economy. It's no different now than it was back in the uh, 1200 BC. In such a world where this is the fundamental action of God, Pharaoh becomes the lord of mercilessness. The logic of Pharaoh is the logic of mercilessness. What are you, human being? You're a slave. Make more bricks, no straw. Uh, against the logic of Pharaoh, there comes the logic of God, which is the logic of mercy. The mercy that acts by liberating slaves against all the odds. You see, the mission that was entrusted to Moses seemed ridiculous, and Moses knew it because he himself had grown up in Pharaoh's court, you'll remember. It seemed impossible, but the only thing that the God of the Bible is good at is the impossible. 
doing what seems can't be done. And eventually, I won't rehearse the story because you know it, Pharaoh says, get out of here. Go out into the desert. And they go, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. No, the imperial economy needs them back. Send the army, get them back. And here they are, the ragbag mob of slaves set free, but in fact hopelessly trapped, caught between the devil and the deep Red Sea. Pharaoh's army thundering towards them, get them back. The logic of mercilessness, and here's the water. This is a God who in fact doesn't liberate, but who holds out a mirage of freedom only to betray those he has promised to set free. But then again, the impossible happens. The water opens. And you have the, 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 the epicenter of the exodus. Through they go, and down comes the water and drowns Pharaoh and his army. Now, what's God up to? Well, God is up to mercy, but what does that mean in practice? What God wants to do, according to Scripture, is to gather together a people, to make a people. God didn't find a people, God made a people. God wants to construct, in a merciless world, God wants to construct a people who will be and do mercy. In other words, they are to be what I would call the counter-society of God. Now, since the uh, Second Vatican Council, we have been used to calling uh, ancient Israel and the church, by extension, the people of God. You've heard the expression, the people of God. Uh, in fact, in many ways, a better translation of what that is in Hebrew would be the society of God. And that's why I speak of the counter-society of God. Now, what's the difference between people of God and society of God? Well, society's a bit more structured. And certainly that's what you find in the Bible, those great law codes. You never read them because they're boring. But don't disregard them because what they are are the emerging structures of the counter-society of God. In other words, God wants it to be very concrete. God doesn't do abstract. Very concrete. So the emerging structures of a, of a society created by God to be counter. What do I mean by counter? Counter to the logic of Pharaoh. But what, what does the merciless logic of Pharaoh say? Once a slave, always a slave. What are you, human being? Get used to it. You're a slave. As Dante inscribes over the gateway to hell in the Divine Comedy, abandon hope all you who enter here. What are you? Slave. Get used to it. Freedom is a mirage. In such a world, and it is the world we know, God wants to set a counter-society. Why? For the sake of the world's transformation. It's a slow and strange way to operate. You know, the Marxists say the best way to transform the world is violent revolution. And there are plenty of other proposals that don't match or correspond to the way God has chosen to work or is choosing to work through history, through a counter-society. Sometimes we use rather more genteel imagery like the leaven. 
in a loaf of bread. Yeah, well, that's all right, but it's just a bit too cosy and genteel, I think. Um, because, you see, Pharaoh fights dirty. The forces of mercilessness are murderous. And it's a dangerous place to be, just ask the Jews, to be set in this kind of merciless world as a mercy people, in other words, the counter-society of God. A community of slaves set free in a world that says, no, slaves don't ever come free. Once you're on the treadmill of slavery, that's it, no hope. So Pharaoh is the lord of mercilessness, is also the lord of hopelessness. Here I touch upon things that I treated in the um, reflections I offered last year. Now, I've mentioned the law codes of ancient Israel, the Torah. We Western Christians get, almost always get the law wrong in the Old Testament, so I, just, I really do need to reflect on this for a moment with you. In the West, instinctively, we tend to think of law as a necessary evil to restrain wayward human passions and to protect fragile human rights. You know, in other words, in the best of all possible worlds, back in paradise when we get there, there will be no law. We won't need it, will we? It's kind of a straitjacket. But in fact, that's not the way the Old Testament sees it at all. Uh, the Jewish people still have a feast every year they call the Rejoicing of the Torah. And they grab those great scrolls and dance around. And you know. uh, Why? Because they are celebrating what they regard as the greatest gift God has given his people, the, the greatest gift that he's given this counter-society of God. Why? Because those, that, that law, those law codes, that Torah, contains the, the divinely given identity of ancient Israel, the counter-society of God. Now, the question was this. It was a great thing for our forefathers and foremothers to come forth from Egypt. The experience of exodus, liberation for them, was a magnificent thing. But what about us? In our time and place, is Exodus once upon a time? We can ask the same question about Easter. Is Easter once upon a time or is it here and now? What about us? And the answer, the brilliantly original, indeed inspired, answer to that question to which ancient Israel comes is the law. What do I mean by that? The law is given by God with the promise that if you obey this law, you, wherever and whenever you are, you will come forth from the Egypt, whatever your Egypt may be. In other words, what is the law according to the Old Testament? It is the royal road of Exodus. And therefore enshrined at the very heart of biblical religion, and this affects the New Testament as much as the Old. There is what I call the mystery of liberating obedience. It's a paradox because it says if you want to be free, you've got to tie yourself down. Now work that out. But you will only know real freedom 
as distinct from cosmetic or illusory freedom, if you obey. And that's why the New Testament makes such a fuss about the obedience of Jesus. He was perfectly obedient to the Father, which is why he enters into the perfect freedom that we call resurrection. It's not just saying, well, wasn't he a good boy? It's also why the New Testament says he's perfect, fully human, perfectly human. You want to know what the human being is in the creative intention of God? Look at Jesus, crucified and risen. That's where you'll see what the human being is intended to be by God. In other words, perfectly obedient. Keeping in mind that the, 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 the biblical story is generated by the clash of divine and human freedom, divine and human will. That's what the fall is all about. It's the clash of the two freedoms. God's freedom against... See, again, when the human being reaches up for the fruit on the tree... We're looking for a final... I want to be free. And the catechesis of evil placed on the lips of the serpent in Genesis 3 is saying, you too can be free. God is your oppressor. Don't believe him. But in fact, in Jesus, you see, you get the perfect harmony of human will and divine will. And once that happens, that perfect obedience, then the human being can come home to paradise, is the way the New Testament has it. Now, so therefore the Torah is a way of mercy. It, it, and that's why the Jewish people celebrate. It's a, gift, a supreme gift of the divine mercy. Nothing oppressive about this law. It liberates and that's why the Psalter jumps up and down and says, your word is a lamp for my steps, a, a light for my path. And, and Psalm 119 goes on and on and on with this great celebration of the law. What are they celebrating? Freedom, liberation, and all of this, the work, the action of the all-merciful God who never allows Exodus to become once upon a time. It's always here and now if you take on board the way of a liberating obedience. The scripture is also very exercised by the question, and this relates to what I've just said about the law, the question of uh, mercy and justice. In fact, the psalm says, mercy and justice have met, embraced. Now, when the Bible talks about justice, it doesn't mean forensic or legal justice in our understanding of it. Usually the word translated as justice in our Bibles is, is something like the Hebrew word tzedakah. There are various other words for it because it's crucial in the scripture. Basically what it means is right relationship. The justice of God means the perfectly right relationship that is in God. When I talk about right relationship, I mean getting it right between us and God and getting it right between each other. Because in the scripture, if you get one wrong, you get the other wrong. If things go wrong between you and God, things go wrong between you and others. It's a cast iron logic. You, you see, once, once Adam and Eve 
things go wrong between them and God. The next story we're told is Cain kills Abel. See what I mean? It's a cast iron logic. So, so the justice of the Bible, the justice of God, as distinct from the justice of Pharaoh, is that which brings perfectly right relationship between us and God and between human being and human being. Even a just society. A society that is that, that embodies right relationship in all at all levels and in all directions. Even the right relationship with the creation and other creatures, the way we treat animals, the way we treat the created world, and so on it goes. In all directions and at all levels, right relationship. That's that's the focus and the chief concern of biblical justice. Now in the end, what the scripture says is You'll never have a world of right relationship unless you have mercy. Only the mercy of God can do that world, can create that kind of counter-society in a world that is so obviously blighted by wrong relationship. I mean, I don't have to assemble the evidence, surely, do I? I mean, it's just it, we drown in the evidence of wrong relationship. In such a world, it's only that power that we call the mercy of God that can possibly create right relationship, a counter-society in a world of wrong relationship. So justice can only be justice if there is mercy. There's no sense of antagonism between the two. Mercy makes real justice possible. Yet sometimes when you hear people talk about mercy, they say, oh, it's, it's gutless. You know, chucking justice out the window. There's no justice there. But for the Bible, you can never have real justice, in other words, the justice of God, unless you have mercy, because only mercy can do that world of right relationship. All of this comes to the fore once you get the kings emerging in ancient Israel. And again, if I can... The risk of repeating myself um, after last year's uh, reflections, but I'll say this again because it is important. The, the kings of ancient Israel only emerge under the, uh, the pressure of a new kind of threat. They get to the promised land and they think perhaps we've finally made it after all our wandering in the wilderness. We have made it to the promised land, but it wasn't, life wasn't like that because they get there and they're surrounded by the Philistines who were in fact... Uh, serious opponents. They were far more culturally advanced and technologically sophisticated than ancient Israel. They had the latest in high-tech weaponry, by which I mean iron weapons. Well, that was a real worry. So, faced with this kind of threat of the Philistines, very sophisticated people who'd come from the, the Mediterranean islands in about 1200 BC. Uh, they needed another form of political and military organisation. The 12 tribes needed to unify in order to meet the new threat. So what do they say? Give us a king who can unify us and lead us in our battles. So the cry for a king was, was understandable, but in fact it presented serious theological problems in the counter-society of God. 
Why? Because they were saying, we want to be like all the other people and have a king to lead us in our battles. But in fact, this particular counter-society of God had been uh, created by God precisely to be different, not to be like everyone else. (laughs) So they're saying, we want to be the same, and Samuel and the others are saying, sorry, you exist only in order to be different. And one of the things is, you have only one king. Who is your king? God. So you're asking for a king, you're in fact saying we don't want God anymore, God's not good enough to fight our battles. So as the kings emerge in that kind of situation and and, and they begin to look more and more like Pharaoh, in fact Solomon has one of Pharaoh's daughters in his harem, and the prophets uh, appear at the same time saying, you're taking the people back to Egypt, you're undermining this society as a counter-society, You're making this society look more and more like Egypt. You're taking them back to the house of slavery. And that's why you have this constant tension between the kings and the prophets. And that can be murderous at times. Just ask Elijah. One of the things that you find uh, very strikingly, almost as a refrain in the prophets of ancient Israel, is... uh, the, the word of God that comes is, what I want is mercy, not sacrifice. And these are words that are in fact echoed by Jesus in the New Testament. They're not just echoed, they're quoted. So you find it in Hosea, in Isaiah, in Micah. So, so it's a real theme of the prophetic preaching. Now, what's going on? See, there's always a danger of a kind of externalism in religion. You go through the motions, you know, you perform all the rites and sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem and the king turns up and does all that he has to do in the liturgy and it's all beautiful in the temple but it's all built on sand is what the prophets say because you come to the temple, you offer all your glorious sacrifices, you're trying to pay God off and yet you you treat the poor person as if he or she doesn't matter a damn. You build on the sand of wrong relationship and what thou worship is all about is precisely celebrating right relationship. So the prophets are all about pointing to that that fundamental contradiction of of a, a worship of God that is purely external, going through the motion, It was like state religion in ancient Rome. No one really believed it and everyone went through the motions to keep the gods happy. But it it didn't have roots in in, in real human life. It was external. And that's the kind of thing that the, uh, the prophets are merciless in condemning. What God wants is the mercy that sets slaves free, not the mercilessness that ties them into an ever-deeper slavery. And so you find in Micah the famous um, call to act justly, to love tenderly, and to walk humbly with God. That's, once you're doing that, then you can worship God. But don't think you're going to pay God off with 
more bulls and lambs and, and glorious ritual in the temple. You know, Jeremiah says it. Don't think you're going to, you're going to avoid um, conquest just by saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, again, the prophets say, you're worried about foreign invasion, and rightly so, because they're bearing down on you. And you think you can, you can meet the challenge by having more powerful political alliances with Egypt or whoever, or you think you can, you can um, save yourself from invasion by building bigger walls around Jerusalem. No, it won't work, Jeremiah says, and they hated hearing this. What he says is the only way to protect yourself against invasion, in fact, is a deeper obedience to the law of God. That's what's created your problems, and if you try anything else, he uses the fantastic image of plastering over the cracks in the walls of Jerusalem. It's all cosmetic. The only defence you have, in fact, is obedience to the law of God. That will set you free and will save you from any invasion. Anything else is purely evasion and cosmetic. So in other words, don't think you can just pay God off. That's not the game this God, the mercy God, plays. So in other words, here you have a people who in all the changing circumstances of their their history, and it, it is seriously dramatic, a people who are to be a mercy people, People, in other words, as I've said, who do mercy. Um, The the absolute crisis comes with the exile. Uh, The Babylonian exile in 587 BC. In a sense, it was the, the crucible out of which the Old Testament, as we know it, emerged. It was a catastrophe because the whole show seemed to collapse. I mean, we think we're dealing with a moment of crisis in the church now. Well, we are. But compared to the kind of crisis that came with the catastrophe of the exile, uh, it's nothing. So this God, the mercy God, seemed to have been beaten by the God of the Babylonians because in the ancient world, the understanding was if you beat me in battle then it was because your God had beaten my God in a heavenly battle. So it was perfectly logical then to say, well, why wouldn't we back the Babylonian God, Marduk, because he was obviously more powerful than our God, because we got beaten and we got thrashed and dragged by the scruff of the neck into exile in Babylon. So you see, that not, this isn't just a theological crisis, what is at stake is, is the whole project of the counter-society and is it, is it worthwhile placing our hope in mercy or would we be better off playing the merciless games of this world? And this is always a temptation, indeed a seduction and a very powerful one because, you see, mercy looked very weak at the time of the exile. And mercy can look very weak. You know, the the Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Uh, But the merciful in the Beatitudes line up among those who seem to be absolute losers. Not winners. 
Now, shouldn't we join the winners? Get with the strength. Back Pharaoh. Back the Babylonians. But then through that time of catastrophe and and crisis, uh, they reclaim their faith in new ways and in a way that provides a future for the counter-society of God and a new and deeper faith in the all-merciful God who hasn't abandoned his people, the prophets say. See, again, in answer to the question, why did the catastrophe happen? Key question. The answer that is given by the prophets, and you find it in that great arc of storytelling from uh, the book of Joshua to the end of two kings, the entry into the promised land right down to the exile itself. That's all done under the influence of the prophets who are giving their answer to the question, why did the, the catastrophe happen? Answer, because you didn't obey the law of God. You sealed your own fate. Don't say you weren't warned. Because, see, you didn't obey the law of God, you didn't take the path of freedom, and you've ended up slaves in Babylon. Again, the logic is unassailable. You took an easy path, thinking that was smart. The way of the world, the way of all flesh, the way of Pharaoh, the way of Marduk, the god of Babylon. And look where you've ended up. You've looked for the right thing in the wrong place. And according to scripture, if you look for the right thing, freedom, in the wrong place, you end up with exactly the opposite, another kind of slavery. This then, I think, is where we begin to understand what the Bible means by mercy. Mercy as a liberating power, mercy as action, mercy as that which is God, not just part of God, God is mercy, and therefore mercy as that which has to become enfleshed in a real human community that is the work of God. That's ancient Israel, and all of that flows then into the New Testament and its understanding of what the church is called to be. And we'll turn to this in, in uh, later reflections.